0: Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining me on today's show is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing?
1: Oh, just enjoying another another great day in the state of Georgia. <laughs> it's always a great day in Georgia.
0: Uh, also joining us today is Nabila Islam. Nabila, how are you?
2: I'm doing good. I'm also enjoying another great day in Georgia as well. <laughs> All
0: right, so on today's podcast, we are going to talk about Joe Biden's selection of California Senator Kamala Harris as his running mate for 2020. We'll talk about the historic nature of her candidacy and whether progressives should actually be wary of a Biden-Harris ticket. Then Tuesday was another election day in Georgia, and in settling some party primaries that went to runoffs, Georgia Republicans decided to send a conspiracy theorist and a gun shop owner to Congress. Uh, we'll also talk about The uh, election featuring a controversial district attorney in Fulton County, Paul Howard, he was defeated in his bid for another term. But let's go ahead and dive in here with Biden's selection of Kamala Harris. So on Tuesday afternoon, Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden announced Kamala Harris would be his running mate. The first Black and Asian American vice presidential nominee, Harris previewed how she would prosecute the Trump administration on Wednesday blasting his response to the COVID-19 pandemic and saying that the case against Donald Trump and Mike Pence was open and shut. And podcast team, I think to start here, I think it's worth reflecting on the historic nature of her candidacy. She is the first Black and the first Asian American vice presidential nominee. Um, She is only the third female VP nominee um, that we've had Nabila, what are your thoughts on the barriers that Kamala Harris is breaking here?
2: I mean, I mean, her, uh, Biden picking her uh, as his VP is definitely historical. I mean, she is half South Asian, half African American. Um, I see a part of myself in her, um, I, and it's pretty amazing to see someone that is a first generation American, whose, parent, whose mom is from India, the dad is from uh, Jamaica to uh, you know to be the vi- you know the potential potential vice president the next vice president of this country, and I, I think it means a lot to uh, people of color in this country as well. And I I know a lot of people are just very proud to see representation at that level, um, and it's, it's you know for a lot of people it's the first time that they're seeing themselves in a uh, in in a vice vice presidential candidate.
0: Luke, for those voters that will see themselves for the first time in a in a vice presidential candidate, do you think that that has any impact on turnout or, or the likelihood that people turn out to vote to support a Biden-Harris ticket?
1: The honest answer to that is we don't know. Uh, we kind of have mixed results because, you know, Barack Obama being the first African-American candidate of a major ticket really... Boosting African American turnout and minority turnout in general, and he had a very very high support among that group. And then Hillary Clinton, being the first female candidate uh, for a major ticket, did not see like universal female support. Uh, and so it kind of goes both ways. Uh, I I suspect she will attract. Some more African. I mean, I, I think I think the really sad thing is like we won't know because I think turnout's going to be so ridiculously high in this election for all the other reasons that it's going to be difficult to to know for sure which reason turnout went up.
0: So, despite the historical nature of her selection, her her nomination here, she was also described in the press as kind of the safe pick for this seat. She is probably the highest profile potential VP nominee who was most aligned with Joe Biden in terms of ideology and politics. Um, Somebody like Elizabeth Warren was seen as probably shifting a potential Biden-Warren ticket pretty far to the left. Karen Bass was another, another person who was considered in the final days of this process by Joe Biden, and she also would have been a pretty significant shift to the left. Another candidate who maybe, you know, it would be hard to say in terms of ideology where she would take where she would have taken the ticket. Um, But Susan Rice was somebody who was considered she's former national security advisor in the Obama Biden administration. She is somebody who uh, was renowned for basically being really good at the job of governing good at the job of of managing and and shuffling things through the federal government and strong on foreign policy issues um that i heard you know particularly in sort of the the pod save podcasts from former obama officials who really liked susan rice um despite that she is somebody who never ran for public office so there were some questions there about some of her political chops and, and whether or not she was would have been if she was selected would have been uh the right person to read lead the party from a political perspective but luke what do you what was your takeaway of this framing of kamala harris as the safe pick uh particularly compared to some of the names i mentioned here
1: well my my first takeaway is i lost four bucks because <laughs> i didn't think it was going to be kamala so you had another uh predicted loss for luke um so that that's my first thought but you know in all seriousness like it is kind of crazy that we are in a political moment where a black woman is the like safe pick because i mean 10 years ago that would have been quite surprising to a lot of people i think uh to hear to hear that that was a safe pick because i feel like even then we were still sort of getting over the feeling of electing the first black president so on that i think uh, that's great that uh, no r- real narrative existed of like Kamala being a risk uh, based on those factors. So I think that is great. On the other hand, you know, this was the pick that I think makes the most sense in retrospect. And I should not have bet $4 against her being picked um, because Biden is not likely to adopt the like persona of someone being radical. And so like as much as I like Elizabeth Warren, the VP should never be the story, uh, and pi- by picking Kamala Harris, she picks he picks someone who had ha- who has tremendous political skills, who is, as he would say, simpatico uh, on his political beliefs, and you know can add to the ticket rather than distract things from the ticket. And I think all the other folks you mentioned suffer from some element of distraction. You know, there's the candidates that had not run for office uh, on. That high of a level or in Susan Rice's case at all, they all had minor controversies that, you know, the press had just started to work out on. And it's just like we don't have time for that. And so having Kamala Harris be the pick is is great because not only is she very talented and very smart and has a lot of things that she's going to bring to the ticket, but we also pretty much know who she is at this point and we know like what the bad things people say about her are there, there, there won't be any surprises. Hopefully fingers crossed. There won't be any surprises about Kamala Harris. And I, I think that is also a strength in this moment.
2: Um, I saw uh, someone wrote on Twitter, at least this time around, I, I did not have to Google who the VP nominee was, um, which I thought was Poor Tim funny for Tim King. Yes. Um But yes, we all pretty much know who Kamala is and, just so you guys know who I was rooting for, and I knew this was never going to happen, but I really liked Barbara Lee. Um, <laughs> I, would have, uh, I would have liked, um, I would definitely would have loved uh, Elizabeth Warren as a, a VP nominee. Um, and I think uh, a lot of progressives were disappointed uh, that someone more left wasn't chosen. With that being said, uh, Kamala Harris has voted uh, with Bernie Sanders 92% of the time. Um, and I think you know this administration, Donald Trump, has just been so horrible. I feel that we are going to uh, unite against uh, a common enemy that is Donald Trump, and, and stay focused on that. That being said, um, I I know that you know progressives will hold this administration accountable when you know uh, Joe Biden does win, uh, and and we're going to be hopeful in pushing. Um, this administration, this future administration, um, more to the left. But yeah, I, I think Kamala was a, a safe pick. Um, you know, her and Biden are pretty similar in ideology. And uh, I think they they would make a really great team together. I think they've you know worked really well together. You know, prior to them running, even when they were both campaigning um, against each other, they had kind of a, a, fr- a friendly uh, camaraderie going on, even when she was attacking him. <laughs> Um, but for the sake of the country, I'm hopeful that Kamala being part of this ticket will boost turnout, um, in any which way. And I just really want to get rid of Donald Trump.
0: Nabila, I think what you raise, I think what you mentioned raises this question of how progressives should feel about a Biden-Harris ticket. And there are a few things about Kamala Harris that are divergent, but all true at the same time that I think... In some ways, make this sort of conflicting for for how progressives should feel. Um, her, you mentioned this. Her voting record in the Senate is pretty similar to progressives like Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Cory Booker. Also, apparently, has a, a pretty liberal voting record according to you know statistics that the DW nominate scores that get published. Kamala Harris also stood out in the Senate as one of during the Trump administration one of the earliest hardliners on policies that are welcoming to immigrants. She was one of the first senators to say that she would vote against a spending bill if it did not solve the issues related to the DACA program. Um, ultimately, Democrats did force a brief government shutdown related to DACA. That's an issue that's still not solved, but but she did sort of put her put her foot out there on that issue. But progressives have pretty sharp criticisms of her record from earlier in her career from when she was district attorney in San Francisco. And when she was the attorney general of California, Um, she's criticized for this anti truancy program that she had a hand in that jailed parents uh, for their children, missing school. She defended California's death penalty law in court, despite the fact that she, um, I believe publicly and sort of personally opposes the death penalty and she resisted efforts to police, She resisted efforts to increase accountability for police misconduct. There's a whole host of other criticisms that you can find um, from sort of left outlets about Kamala Harris's career. But Nabila, both of these things are true. So how do you think about how Kamala Harris's experiences, first in California and then as a member of the Senate, sort of shaped? the kind of vice president she'd be and from a progressive perspective shape the kind of ideological positions that a Biden Harris administration would take.
2: So I think this has really played out um during the presidential run. You know, she wanted to be uh, both sides, establishment and progressive. And she couldn't really figure out what her lane was. And so she she waffled. And here um, you know, her prosecutor record is you know, problematic. Um, there are some uh, areas of it that, you know, progressives are not so happy about. But like you mentioned, she and as I mentioned earlier, she does have a pretty progressive voting record. And like, look, she has spoken out, uh, spoken, uh, uplifted uh, immigrants and people of color and, you know, spoken about her issues in, in a powerful way. And, you know, I'm hoping that she will, you know, pull uh, Biden a little bit more to the left. Um, he, uh, to me, was more of one of the most uh, conservative candidates running for president uh, this cycle. So um, I'm hopeful that she will you know, pull him a little, a little bit more to the left. But he, he's already doing that. I mean, look, he, he, his uh, climate proposal, um, it was very uh, refreshing to see. Um, he, went a, he went a little left on that as well. Uh, I know Congressman Ocasio-Cortez, Helped craft that, and he, you know, put her on the team to do so. So he's listening. He's seeing, uh, you know, how the landscape is shifting, and uh, I'm hopeful that Kamala will also um, help shift uh, this presidency uh, to be a little bit more progressive than he originally was.
1: Well, I, I have two quick thoughts. Hopefully, quick thoughts on you know how Kamala's record reflects what we're likely to seeing a you know Joe Biden Kamala Harris presidency. The first thing is, and this is one thing that's like a frustrating argument that I keep having to have, is that a lot of these criticisms of her time of AG and of prosecutors in generally, like don't at least reflect the reality that you like legally have to like, like, especially for attorney generals, because, pro- you know, DAs are a little bit different. But for attorney generals, you are legally constitutionally sworn as the lawyer for the state. Like not, you are not the lawyer of your intentions and feelings. You are the lawyer of the state of California in her case, and you have to enforce the state of California's laws. There are some, you know, some ways you can get around that, but I mean, usually speaking, ethically speaking, for a lawyer, that is what you are supposed to do. You are to represent your client, and in her case, her client is the state of California. Now, could she done more to advocate for? Change of those laws because you have uh, enforced them less harshly, definitely. But I think you know there should at least be an asterisk by like this is the role of the attorney general. So that that's that's one thing. The other thing is and I think this is also reflected in Joe Biden is that I, I, I'm so frustrated when you know progressives, especially progressives our age, are like you know what really defines Joe Biden. What he did in the 70s and what he did in the early 80s and anything he's done to contrast that or to grow or to show that he's involved in issues is mute because I've been right since the day I was born. I've been right on these policy issues because I was born on this day where we have evolved as a country on these views. And so I am better and I am purer than Joe Biden, who was not that person. And it's just it's very frustrating when, you know, people basically are attacked for learning better. (laughs) Because I feel like this is true of both Joe Biden and Kamala Harris is that they have realized that in the past they have been wrong and they have grown and gotten better and improved and accepted new information. And I think really if there's anything uh, the current administration is really bad at is, is changing their views under new information. And so if anything, I think their ability to navigate very tricky political landscapes and to kind of consistently be in the middle of the party is a strength, not a weakness. Kamala is not as good at it as Joe Biden is as seeing, you know, where, uh, as you very properly pointing out, uh, Nabila with, um, you know, like, Kamala was very uncomfortable with, like, trying to flirt with both the left and the, and, uh, the uh, you know, moderate lane of the party, whereas I, I feel like Biden has learned how to navigate it, and at the end of the day, what I, the impression I get from both of them is they want to get things done. And if they have the votes to do the really progressive thing, they'll do that. If they have the votes to do the slightly more moderate thing, they'll do that. But I think, you know, the goals are the same. Uh, the the values are the same. And they seem far more value driven than, you know, this is the correct policy position and I will die on this hill. That does not seem like either there's temperament. They are far more driven by results. And I think that is really what we need right now.
2: Yes, no, I I I agree. I will say, you know, Biden made did make that comment that if Congress passed uh, Medicare for All, he would veto it. So um, (laughs) people were not happy. Progressives were not happy with that. So
1: yeah, and and obviously there's exceptions. You know that that would be one of the major exceptions. But I mean, like his Build Back Better plan is quite similar to the Green New Deal. It's not exactly the same. It doesn't go as far, but I mean like I I feel like he would probably pass most of the Green New Deal if you put it on his desk. The the healthcare thing is a little bit different just because of how much he's worked on that issue um, and how clearly he feels that we should just keep working in the Obamacare framework.
0: This though I think does speak to some progressives frustration with finding justification for punting on Doing the big moral and right things more often than not. I mean, there are additional authorities or use of the bully pulpit that Kamala Harris had, both as a district attorney and as a attorney general in California. Um Democrats in Congress are are criticized by the left for too often using like process concerns like the filibuster or concerns over whether or not. Concerns over how Republicans will argue against the things that they do as excuses for not doing the moral right and just thing. And so I think that sort of is at the heart of this discussion, particularly as you think about how to evaluate Kamala Harris's record, is I think for a lot of progressives who may be frustrated with this ticket, they sort of see a repeat of the Obama administration coming where – they, there will be this lip service to progressives and there will be, you know, additions of progressive policy items to campaign wish lists and planning documents and task forces and all of this stuff. But skepticism about once the rubber hits the road, when these folks get in office and have to govern sort of which interests they will ultimately serve and whether or not the rhetoric that they had on the campaign trail and all the shifting and courting of the left that they did, whether or not that ultimately stands up when the final decisions have to be made.
2: I think look, um, you can't ignore uh, you know the progressive voting bloc, and where we are as a country today is a lot more a lot different than where we were with when uh, uh, when Obama was inaugurated. Uh, I mean, look at Congress. We like in twenty eighteen we elected one of the most, the, the most diverse delegation ever. And we have, you know, the folks that are spearheading conversations in Congress today are freshman Congresswomen like Ilhan and Rashida and, and Ayana and AOC. And so you, you won't be able to, you, you will not be able to get away with lip service because we're going to hold, you know, every administration going forward accountable. So, um, there, they will, I mean, like, I think our voices will be heard and I do think that every cycle, um, you know, the country is moving, the democratic party is moving more to the left than they are to the right.
0: Final note on the VP pick before we talk about runoffs, we do have our first piece of true appointment television for the 2020 cycle. And that is going to be the VP debate between Kamala Harris and Mike Pence, are you guys popping your popcorn for that one?
2: Yeah, <laughs> that'll be fun. Um, I uh, I wonder if my Pence will bring his wife to the debate.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, someone will have to console him after. So I I would hope so. You know, COVID appropriately, obviously, but
0: yeah, after what she's done to to Bill Barr and to uh, Brett Kavanaugh, I mean, that's the one thing that she is sort of universally praised for is her performance in set pieces where she, using her prosecutorial skills, sort of takes apart the arguments of the opposition. Seems tailor-made for a great debate uh, between her and Pence, and probably the best one of the VP and the three presidentials because, to be honest, both Joe Biden and Donald Trump are, are hard to follow sometimes.
1: Yeah, the the one thing I really would love to know going into that debate is like, who is Pence going to get to play Kamala Harris for him? Because I can't even imagine like who the Republicans would have available to them to play her and who would be capable of doing it. Maybe Nikki Haley, I guess. Uh, so there's that element. And then, uh, you know, you know, to defend defend Joe Biden or the nominee of our party, um, I he He's a lot better on one on ones. It's kind of hard to be like an old white guy and like say, yeah, I should I should lead this super diverse party and not someone like Kamala Harris. Uh, so I, I feel like when he's going against Trump, Joe Biden will be at his best, which is like empathetic and, you know, have the ability to consider what another human being might be feeling. And also, uh, you know, his I mean, it's really it's I mean, it's remarkable to me just how right Joe Biden was because his first video announcing his run was like, we need to like fight for the soul of America and boy, was he right. And so I, I feel like when he's having a debate about that rather than like what he did in the seventies and who's the most left candidate when he's one-on-one with Trump, I feel like he'll just be on a lot more comfortable ground and he won't be as fumbly as he usually is. At least I hope.
2: I hope so too. I hope, uh, Biden uh, does really well against Trump. Uh, Trump is masterful, though, uh, in, in the way that he just cuts people down with really dumb words. So I'm hoping that <laughs> yeah. uh, he, uh, he he isn't as a bully as he usually is, which I doubt I am pretty sure he will be. Um, but as far as uh, Kamala, I think he's going to eviscerate Pence. Um, he's not going to know what to do with himself afterwards. So um, I'm, I look forward to watching both of the debates.
0: My favorite piece of Trump reaction to the selection of Kamala Harris is he had a press conference the afternoon after Harris's selection was announced and the reporter asks him, he says, your campaign uh, put out a video referring to her as phony Kamala. And he had his look on this face like the journalist just informed him of what his campaign did. And he had no idea what his attack <laughs> on Kamala Harris was supposed to be. <laughs> we'll see if he approves of his own campaign's messaging going forward. All right, so let's move on to our second topic for today. So it was Election Day yet again in Georgia on Tuesday. Voters returned to the polls to decide a handful of congressional and state legislative primary races that went into runoffs, along with a few notable local contests. Most notable of these in on the congressional level was QAnon conspiracy theorist and the internet's harshest critic of teenagers, Marjorie Taylor Greene, she won a runoff and is most likely going to be Georgia's next representative in the 14th congressional district. Uh Luke, you mentioned the the fake and super offensive and racist Twitter account of the fake member of Georgia's 15th congressional district last week and when you look at Marjorie Taylor Greene's Twitter feed, it's like worse than the parody. That account is
1: dead <laughs> like it can't do anything anymore it's worse than the parody it is truly worse than the parody because it's just like i i mean it's just honestly if there was like a handbook of like terrible things republicans have said um she she has said all of them like you know called george soros a nazi check <laughs> you know bully teenagers check um believe in QAnon. check i mean it's 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 Quite quite remarkable, really. I mean, by by that, you know, and we're gonna talk about this race as well, but like Andrew Clyg in the ninth is like normal. Yeah. Um, so.
0: so let's start here with with Marjorie Taylor Green. She is somebody who I found to be kind of a clown and kind of a laughing stock through most of the primary season. She initially began her bid for Congress in the sixth congressional district, thinking that she could defeat Karen Handel and go on to challenge Lucy McBath in that district. Um, I guess she found out that in the suburbs of Atlanta, she has no appeal. So she moved and moved her candidacy to the 14th Congressional District, which is something that you can do. This is the race that will replace uh, retiring Representative Tom Graves in Congress. And she, she got into a runoff. She actually won the most votes in the regular primary, but was forced into a runoff because she didn't get 50% plus one. And then she, maybe embarrassingly, but pretty easily won the runoff against a neurosurgeon from Rome, John Cowan. And if you had any inclination that maybe all of this was bluster, maybe all of this was just a show for what we know is a pretty radical Republican primary electorate in a district that is generally like 65, 35 Republican. And if you thought that maybe she would sort of transform into a more normal political figure after her victory, she she disabused you of those notions pretty quickly. Um, At her victory speech, she said she wanted to be the worst nightmare to the liberal left. And she said of Nancy Pelosi, she said Nancy Pelosi is a hypocrite. She's anti-American. And she said, we're going to kick that bitch out of Congress in her victory speech. Nabila reactions to this woman. She's she's going to Congress.
2: Yeah, uh, I've been founding the horn on her since she was in a primary against uh, with uh, uh, Karen Handel. I, I knew when when she got into that primary uh, that she would, well, she was probably going to win. And listen, the woman is a complete psychopath. Yes, yeah, she, she she's going to be a thorn in our side, but like she's also going to be the Republican Party's worst nightmare because she's about to be a liability. She has said incredibly offensive things, like uh, in, in regard to Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, you know, the first two uh, Muslim Congresswomen. Uh, compared them to a Muslim invasion that Sharia law was uh, going to be implemented. Uh, She, you know, doesn't think um, Islam should be um, a religion that should be practiced in this country. I mean, look, she has said racist, um, anti-Semitic, Islamophobic things that even people in Republican leadership have uh, stepped back uh, away from her. Um, I thought it was really... um, you know, Donald Trump uh praising her victory was really lock in step with how he really feels about, you know, all all of these minority groups. I'm really disappointed that Georgia elected her to Congress, that we are sending this woman to Congress. And I really, really hope that she will end up being a one term Congresswoman. It is it is a real disappointment that someone like her uh, could be elected, but you know, here we are.
0: Luke, in, in general, this kind of politics broadly has not served the Republican Party well. I mean, Donald Trump won a surprise victory in 2016, campaigning on, on a lot of these similar messages. Although, I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene is so bad that you could almost call Donald Trump tepid compared to compared to Marjorie. But since that time, they lost a gerrymandered majority in the House very quickly. They uh, had an even stronger advantage in the Senate that may disappear after this election. Uh, we are talking on the day that the 538 presidential model came out, and 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 according to this model, he wins the presidential election 71 out of 100 times in in their forecast. And yet, there are Republicans across the country in conservative places who are kind of doubling down. On this politics. We talked last week about Kelly Leffler's crusade against the Black Lives Matter movement in the WNBA. Marjorie Taylor Greene just ratchets this up to an entirely new level. Why do you think Republicans feel empowered to pursue this kind of politics?
1: Well, first thing, I do want to push back there. We have not elected her to Congress yet. She has an opponent in November. That district can choose to make a different decision. Now, based on electoral history and common sense and how these things play out. Unfortunately, she probably will win and she probably will be the Congresswoman from that district, but there is still a chance. And you know the thing I mean, didn't Trump the, win the this real, district by
0: like fifty mm-hmm. points? Didn't Trump win this district by like fifty points last time?
1: Yeah, I believe it is the most conservative district in the country. Fifty um, seven Yeah. Fifty
0: seven it, points. Yeah. It's definitely up there if it's not. Um so I mean it's worth noting the Democrat, but but I just acknowledging that it'll be such an uphill battle
1: because here's the thing right like the there, there's only two explanations for why she is going to be elected and it one of them is that all of these republicans actually believe this stuff which i really doubt uh but there definitely are some that do and there's definitely plenty of voters in um their party that do because i also like knew she was going to win when i saw what she was doing i knew she was going to win because as i I mentioned previously about uh kelly loffler's strategy she was controversial and so people knew who she was and if you're constantly getting news articles written about you whereas her opponent is the other guy who's running against her Like, that's not a great argument for, like, why you should be elected. You know, Nixon had a great comment, which is, if there's ever a Stop X campaign, bet on X. Um, And he's not wrong. Uh, So in this similar, this exact same similar situation, the reason why these people are winging is because they are being enabled, because they're, because, I mean, right now, you can't tell me that if the Republican Party really wanted to, that they have no power whatsoever, get her off the ballot... And even if they can't get her off the ballot, if every Republican elected in the state said like, we don't agree with her and we do not think she should be the candidate and we are endorsing her opponent, then like she probably wouldn't be in there. And then on top of that, if she does get to Congress, Congress has the ability to censure people, to kick people out. Like There are things that could be done to prevent her from going to Congress, but no one has the willpower to do it or the, you know, uh, feel, no one has, no one feels like they have the ability to do it. And the reason I know that is they didn't do it when it was easy. They didn't do it when there was like 18 other people (laughs) running against her. I can't remember how many people were in the first round, but there were several. And they didn't do it when they had a clear, uh, you know, other choice that still would be very conservative and still do every vote every way they want to, but would not just be batshit. And they decided to go with the batshit person. So that is their party. And the thing this makes me think of is, you know, Georgia has been trying to become a swing state for a long time. And so I, I've spent a lot of time reading and talking to friends in Virginia and, be, you know, trying to figure out, like, what they did and how they were effective. And one thing that's really, I you know, been striking me lately is something that I heard from them, which is uh, – and this also happened in Colorado – is basically the Republican Party went insane when they started losing. Like, they just started electing a bunch of people like this when they started losing. And I really think the Georgia Republican Party, if you're out there and you're listening, uh, you know, you gotta, you got like, take a deep breath and think about, like, is this what you want? Because um, if you keep enabling these folks like this is going to be the party. The party will not be your reasonable people who get things done, who, you know, have minor disagreements on policy. It will be people who think like the entire government is a pedophile ring. Um, and, you know, it, this to me seems like a good moment to transfer to the ninth race, because in the same vein, uh, that race was between representative Matt Gertler, who was a very conservative, but, but, very much a politician, a person who like did the job of a representative and you know didn't say completely crazy things and he lost to a guy who runs a gun shop. Now, Clyde's Armory is very successful and so you know, he obviously knows something about selling guns. Um but like is that really like who you want in government? The guy who like says inflammatory things and sells guns and apparently that is what the Republicans want.
2: So, I think that You know, in these primaries, you you throw red meat, right? Because the primary voters are more conservative than your general election voters, and so everyone's trying to beat each other in terms of how mean they can be to marginalized communities. You know, so I was reading the other day about why do you know Trump supporters continue to support Trump when clearly he's you know said and done awful things, and one hundred sixty thousand Americans have died from COVID nineteen, and it's because it's a lot for a lot of these supporters, it's not what exactly Donald Trump does for them, but what he does to punish other people that are not like them. So I think the party has become more white. it's become more it's just become very like homogenous, it's not inclusive, it's hostile. Um, and it, it's mean to people of color, it's immigrants. it's mean to people like me. and and apparently, you know, the, Trump supporters are, they're, you know, diehards about being mean and being bullied and, and, and it gives them a they have like a complex with it. It makes them feel like they have power. And, and I, I'm just I just want to read this tweet that Donald Trump posted today, which like exploded my head. But he wrote the suburban housewife will be voting for me. They want safety and are thrilled that I ended up ended these long running program where low income housing would invade their neighborhoods. Biden would reinstall it in a bigger form with Cory Booker in charge. Like it's no longer dog and whistle, right? They're just, they're, like, this administration is just full blown, full blown racist. A hundred and three thousand people liked this tweet. I mean, it's it's disgusting. And can the Republican turn? Can the Republican Party turn this around? I don't know. I mean, they kind of just made their bed, and now they're gonna have to lie in it. And it's 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 frankly disappointing. And two parties have become so polarized. This administration has. I, listen, guys, I can talk about how I hate Donald Trump so much. Um, but I just think that, you know, the the Republican Party as is, is at a point where I don't know that if they can turn around, uh, turn back from it.
0: To underscore just like the general meanness that has come to define conservative politics in recent years, um, that... At the at Marjorie Taylor Greene's victory party, uh, Greg Bluestein, AJC reporter, was there. Um, he was allowed to stay briefly, where he wrote up the story and, and got the main quotes that that were in his piece, and then he was escorted out of the party. Niles Francis, who is if you're active in Georgia politics, Twitter, you've, you've almost certainly seen his Twitter account. He's a part of this group of young people who do election analysis. They make some of the best maps that are out there on Twitter. If you're really interested in breaking down by county or by precinct or any other ways of sort of breaking down electoral performance. Um, He basically tweeted out and shared Greg's news that he was escorted out of this party and Marjorie Taylor Greene attacked him on Twitter um said that if Niles had showed up at her election victory party uh she would have kicked him out too and um it, it basically invited by calling him out basically invited all of her crazy QAnon believing followers to uh go after him on Twitter to the extent that he ended up uh deactivating his Twitter account and I deemed her in the intro the internet's harshest critic of teenagers because actually the way that Marjorie Taylor Greene came on the radar for me was I saw this video of her accosting David Hogg, the one of the survivors of the Parkland shooting in Florida, accosting him in front of Congress when he was coming to speak about uh, you know gun safety issues to members of Congress, and this was like she gained this kind of internet fame among sort of extremely online conservatives for being racist and also being abrasive to people who have endured some of the worst events imaginable. And it just underscores, I think, like the coldness and the meanness of this politics that I think is, you know, you can, you can say, and you can critique bad policies that have been supported by both parties, but sort of the openly mean politics, I think, does feel new to me. The other sort of notable thing about uh, the congressional runoffs, and and then we'll get into uh, this discussion of the Fulton DA's race, is that for the Georgia delegation, they now replace Tom Graves, uh, who I believe was the most senior Republican member of the delegation, and Doug Collins, who is running for Senate. They will be replaced by Marjorie Taylor Greene and... Andrew Clyde, and I think if you're somebody who follows delegation politics, you know, there's obviously a lot of polarizing issues where Democrats and Republicans in the Georgia delegation don't agree, but there's also a lot of sort of home state issues or non-polarizing issues where the delegation often works together, and both Collins and Graves were known as pretty effective representatives of their district and of our state, And following the two campaigns of of Green and Clyde, I just, I really can't see them sort of being effective representatives of the state's interests. And I think that a lot is lost in exchanging Collins and Graves for Green and Clyde.
1: Yeah, I think that's the, you know, the real tragedy, because I think the United States works better when it has two parties that aren't just completely out of control, uh, and it Really is a shame that we are in this position where we do have a party that is out of control uh and uh i I you know not big fans of either Doug Collins or Tom Graves, but they at least you know would have civil conversations with some of their colleagues in Congress and would try to do things for the state of Georgia and try to get things done and I think that is a real loss for the state and uh, i don't I don't really think either of the new likely Congress people from Georgia are going to be very popular or really help the state in any way.
2: We are uh, losing uh, statementship and it's very unfortunate because um, both Graves and Collins, um, which I I know I I don't agree with them either, but are being replaced by like Looney Tunes, um, like characters, caricatures of what elected officials should be like. And I don't think they will be effective uh, representatives and uh, I, it's it's really concerning. So
0: the other high-profile runoff on during Tuesday's elections was this challenge to Fulton County District Attorney Paul Howard. He was challenged by Fonnie Willis, a former deputy of his in the DA's office. Um, most of the DA races that we've talked about recently have been focused on this frame of progressive, reform-minded prosecutors challenging long-tenured DAs who represented a tough-on-crime mindset that was much more popular in the 90s and early 2000s. It was the era in which Kamala Harris came up in, um, but it is an era that is being rethought and challenged by progressive reformers. This race between Fonnie Willis and Paul Howard did not seem to fall along those lines. Um, This was a race that seemed much more aimed at a referendum on Paul Howard's conduct than it was about these ideological differences. Um, he, Paul Howard was criticized over lawsuits alleging discrimination and sexual harassment by some of his subordinates. Um, he was investigated by the Georgia Bureau of Investigation for using his nonprofit to funnel money into his personal bank account. Um, and he was accused by his critics of politicizing The case where Rayshard Brooks was murdered outside of a Wendy's in Atlanta and Paul Howard actually very quickly and in advance of a GBI investigation being completed, brought charges against the officers involved in that case, um, which you might typically think is sort of a a win for quick accountability for police misconduct, um, but he was critiqued for having 43 prior police shooting cases on his desk that he didn't act on and suddenly finding the ability to act only when he was uh, challenged by somebody in his own party when he had electoral consequences on the line. Um, Luke, your reactions to uh, Paul Howard being defeated by his former deputy in the CA's race.
1: So, I'm glad about it. I will admit that I have not followed Paul Howard's career all that much. I do know that he faced a lot of controversies and most recently he he faced several as well. And, uh, you know, sort of in the same vein of the, like, I think following lawyer ethics is really important. You know, Paul Howard not only arrested those, uh, you know, officers I- involved in that shooting, Richard Brooks, he also violated the normal ethics rules of how a DA approaches that by like having a press conference saying, here is all of our evidence, because you're not supposed to do that, you're supposed to save that for a courtroom. And so, you know, in the interest of like having someone who takes their position uh, seriously and follows the ethical rules, and you know, is not going to be as controversial, hopefully, I think it's important. That there's a change there because I am usually someone who discounts quite significantly anyone who's like, oh, every office should have term limits because, you know, for a- every Paul Howard, you have a John Lewis who is like you want them there forever. Um, And so I think this is proof positive of what I have been saying, Uh, you know, about all these election topics is like the electorate should be empowered to make decisions And just because Paul Howard had been there forever does not mean he would stay there forever. And when someone is held accountable by the media, held accountable by an uh, opponent, there is a chance for change there. And so I think that is just really what we're seeing here is just that like it was time for him to go. It was probably well past time for him to go. And now he is going to be going. And so I think I think that is great.
2: This is why I support primaries, because folks like Paul Howard uh, become complacent in their positions of power, and he's had a problematic record. I think that, you know, Fannie Willis uh, defeating him was um, the Fulton County. um, This is a real referendum on on him since he's been there for so long. Um, And look, power is not given away, it's taken away. So I'm really glad that she ran a strong campaign and, you know, the county spoke up and chose her. So um, I'm, I look forward to seeing what her leadership will look like and, um, you know, I'm hoping that it will be a hundred percent ethical, um, unlike what his, he just seemed to have a lot of scandals. So, um, I don't think, you know, you, the DA should be distracted with scandals around them. They need to be working on behalf of the County. So I, I wish her all the luck.
0: She, I think has certainly set the table for herself as somebody who, uh, believes in and, and will likely hold herself to higher ethical standards than Paul Howard did. I think the thing that's a little unclear and maybe could be considered a missed opportunity for people who are excited about progressive district attorney reforms is it wasn't clear that Fannie Willis was running this reform minded campaign. And she actually took contributions from a police union during this campaign and, and faced some criticism for that. Um, So I think, you know, I I think the jury is out on that to some extent on whether or not there is momentum for more active, more progressive reforms in the city of Atlanta and in Fulton County. Um, And I imagine though that that if Fani Willis is not at least sensitive to those conversations, is not bringing those reform proposals forward. That as a relatively new, um, as a relatively new elected official in this position, you know, that's a conversation that's not going away. Um, so just a, a handful of other results here uh, to talk through, and, and I'll open the floor for for both of y'all to mention any notable results you saw on Tuesday. Um, the, the one that stood out to me, we talked with both Democrats that were in a runoff in House District 35. Uh, this is the District that is currently occupied by Representative Ed Setzler. He is the leading champion of the state's abortion ban bill that was passed in 2019. And so vying to take him on and to try to flip this seat to Democrats in November was Kyle Renato, who is a music teacher at my alma mater, Etowah High School, who can't seem to stay out of the headlines these days. Um, And he faced off against Lisa Campbell, who's a business consultant. And uh, we talked with both of them in the lead up to this race the thing that stood out to me as a trend that we've seen particularly in the Trump era in democratic primary politics in Georgia and across the country has been that Democratic voters have been excited, motivated to pull the lever for female candidates for women of color candidates um, and to try to give them positions of power even when, they have challenged sort of longtime incumbents. I think the most notable was Steve Henson, the uh, former minority leader of the state Senate Democrats. He almost lost a primary challenge in 2018, and then he opted not to run for re-election this cycle. In this case, though, it appears that Kyle Renato has defeated Lisa Campbell in this race. And so Democratic voters in State House District 35 chose a a young and and I thought fairly charismatic but a, a young white guy to lead the charge in trying to take the seat of the the state's most active anti-abortion activist legislator um reactions to that decision by Democratic primary voters
2: so I won't I won't claim to know um, what the electorate is like in house district 35 but uh, you know primary runoff are are typically more white um uh, you will see a huge drop off in um you know black and brown folks who show up to the polls so um it could be because it was a runoff uh that uh you know i I have to i have to look at the data but perhaps more more white people came out than black and brown people and uh they wanted to vote for the white guy Um, I don't know if it was because of that, but I will say, I mean, like, runoff there historically, um, you have higher uh, white turnout.
1: The only thing that I would add to that is Cal Renato did run in 2018. He lost in the primary, actually, and actually lost pretty badly. And so I think it is definitely partially about the fact that this was just a primary runoff. It was also a primary runoff for a state house race, which a lot of people unfortunately don't really pay attention to until like after Labor Day, if at all. And just like the fact that he had ran for it two years ago. And, you know, I I genuinely think no matter how natural of a politician slash candidate you are, you get better with practice So I imagine his campaign was probably a little bit better than it was last time and combined the fact that it's a low turnout election, that that was enough to get him over.
0: Um, So a couple other notable results, Uh, two long-term incumbent uh, state legislative Democrats, Michelle Henson and Sharon Beasley Teague, they lost runoffs to challengers. Uh, Ted Terry, he was a former candidate for the U.S. Senate. He won his race uh, for a DeKalb commission seat. Um, if you are involved in, in Democratic politics in Georgia, particularly around the legislature, you probably know Seth Clark. He was a former aide to Stacey Evans. He won a seat on the Macon Bibb County Commission. Um, other, either reactions to, to any of these or other results you'd like to note before we go today?
2: I'm actually really excited about Zoma Lopez. Um, she, I, well, I think, will be the first Puerto Rican woman. Uh, to be uh, elected to the state legislature. So I'm all about uh, diversifying our state legislature. And, you know, I commend uh, Representative Michelle Henson Mm -hmm. on a a very long uh, history of uh, representing her district. And, but I I believe it's, you know, it's time that we have uh, more diverse representation. So I'm really excited about her and see, excited to see, um, you know, the work that she's gonna be doing um, come next uh, uh, January.
1: Yeah, I I would second that, and I think it will be great to have more diversity in the in the state house. That, you know, especially in those communities. And so I think I think that is great. And uh, I'm also excited to see about Ted Terry and Seth Clark. They're both friends, both people I have known and worked with in Georgia politics for a while. So I'm, uh, you know, watching their careers with, with great interest and um, sure that they will will do good things.
2: Yes, and I also have to give a shout out to uh, Nicole Love Hendrickson, who will hopefully be uh, my next uh, chairwoman of the Gwinnett County uh, Commission, uh, but historically, it's been uh, the chair, the chairman slash chairwoman has been white, even though uh, Gwinnett is now a majority minority county, but we've seen some huge demographic shifts in, here uh, in the last 10 years, and so she uh, got 49% in her primary, and she was in the Army, who uh, basically said that he wasn't going to campaign anymore and, and endorsed uh, Nicole because he saw that overwhelmingly the community wanted her. I thought it was pretty commendable of him, and, you know, she naturally won her runoff. So I'm really excited uh, to see her, uh, you know, hopefully. I think I think we're going to see a, blue, a real strong blue wave in um in november i mean Gwyneth's already blue but even stronger and so i'm really excited uh, not just her race but also sheriffs and county uh, tax commissioner a lot of down ballot candidates they're going to flip uh this cycle so I'm pretty excited about that seth clark is also a friend of mine and so i'm super happy for him uh, i think he's going to make a great commissioner and uh gonna uh, it's gonna be really great leadership for macon so i'm really excited for uh macon and, and for him as well
0: yeah congrats to you Seth and I remember I don't Seth may or may not remember who I am i I know him from uh, uh a meeting he led uh when I first worked with with Spencer fry in the state legislature and and so I um, followed his campaign a little bit great ads that he filmed with his old pickup truck, which is the best looking pickup truck on Instagram so uh congrats to you Seth
2: yeah. Yeah, that was a really great ad. He did. He said he was, it was very cost-effective, too, to shoot it. Um, but it, I, I loved it. It was very, um, very homey and vibrant. All
0: righty. Well, on that note, we are going to leave it there this week. Uh, so, Nabila, thank you for joining today's podcast.
1: Of course. Thanks for having me.
0: And, Luke, thank you as well.
1: Happy to be here as always.
0: All righty, We'll talk to y'all again next week. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.